Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Science Fiction, the Fungus Among Us episode. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe, and today I'm pleased to have David Walton with me to talk about his new book, The Genius Plague, which made the Wall Street Journal's list of the best science fiction books of 2017. David is the author of five other books. His first, Terminal Mind, received the Philip K. Dick Award in 2008. But not only is he the award-winning author of six books, he's also an engineer for Lockheed Martin. And not only is he an engineer and author, but he's a dad of seven kids. And I'd say that qualifies as a large family in today's era of families that average 2.5 people. Hi, David. Thanks for joining me. Hi. Glad to be here. Given your many roles as writer, engineer, and father, each of them demanding and potentially all-consuming, how do you do it? How do you fit the pieces of the puzzle of your life together? Well, I'll tell you, uh, writing has always been uh, for me a, um, it's something that I enjoy, something that I'm drawn to. So um, it's, not, uh, it's not a chore that I have to sit down to most of the time. It's something that I am always longing to have a little bit more time to do. Um, and of course, time can be hard to come by for, for any of us certainly working a full-time job and making dinners and and, uh, helping with homework and uh, taking care of all my kids' various needs uh, can fill up a day. But um, I find that uh, writing is something that I'm always thinking about, thinking about in the car, thinking about as I'm moving around my day, doing different things. And so uh, I've kind of learned to write well in the little bits of time that I have. And that's not something that I just came to in an instant. Uh, I've been writing for more than 20 years now. And I think I got to the point where it was, well, either I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do this. <laughs> you know, either, either I'm going to find a way to make it work or it's just going to fall away. And, and falling away wasn't an, an okay answer for me. Um, so I've uh, you know, stuck with it and found a way to make it work in the little corners of time that I can pull here and there. And can you give a picture of that? Is that in the morning commute? Is it staying up late at night? Or is it literally, you know, you've got three minute break between things and you can jot down a few notes? Yeah, there, there is no regular pattern to it. Uh, and I've, I've tried uh, just about everything. I've tried the um, uh, talking to my phone while I'm commuting, uh, which I've made work sometimes. It's a little tricky. Um, hard necessarily to uh, concentrate that way, and then you end up with a lot of false starts and um, things. But I, I've made that work sometimes, and uh, I'll write late in the evenings. And um, I used to get up early in the morning um, to to write, but that, that that's become a harder sell as I've gotten older. Um, but yeah, basically it, it's the corners. Uh, a lot of times it's on weekends, and uh, grab those to, you know <laughs> those odd times when maybe I have a couple hours that doesn't happen very often, uh, grabbing those and making the best use of them. 
I want to talk about uh, fungi and what drew you to them as a primary subject of the genius plague. But before we do that, maybe it would be a good idea if you give a quick summary about the book. You know, what, what, what is the genius plague story? Sure. Uh, the genius plague is about a fungal infection that will make you smarter uh, if it doesn't kill you. Most people survive and it makes them smarter, but the, uh, the uh, payoff to that or the balance to that is that uh, you have a fungus that is growing in your brain. And so the question is, is that fungus uh, benign? Is, is it um, uh, really serving your interests or are you in some way serving its interests? And when you have a whole bunch of people who start to have and spread this, uh, this plague and, and can do some amazing things mentally and are growing in intelligence and communication ability and all of those things, um, is, is, that, is it the next stage of human evolution or, or is it a plague? Um, and uh, when some of those people start to think that it's the next stage of human evolution and really everybody should have it, um, then uh, you, you, it really starts to raise the question um, of, uh, uh, you know, is this something that's beneficial? Are, are we really serving humanity or are we really just serving the fungus? I think it's interesting that you combined both positive attributes and negative uh, for the fungus. I guess it doesn't really take anything away say, to say that the fungus is, in fact, the, the antagonist of the story. You know, it's up to something. There's a nefarious aspect to what's, what's going on. But as you pointed out, there's also some marvelous things that it's doing. In fact, you know, it might even be on a noble mission because one of the, one of the things that starts happening is people start having a strong desire to protect the Amazon rainforest. And I wondered uh, if you could talk a little bit more about your decision to make this antagonist have these kind of noble uh, attributes, you know, like the ability to increase someone's brain power, make them smarter, maybe make them care about the environment in a way that they might not have otherwise cared about, and yet also have the stark side. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted it to be a, a novel that, uh, besides being a you know, fast-paced adventure kind of thing, um, would be a novel that would make people think. And uh, the, the way in which I want people to be thinking is in terms of uh, you know, what makes us, what makes me me? What are the influences that go into the decisions that I make? And uh, if I am influenced to do something good or do something bad. To what extent can I say, well, that was me doing that? And to what extent can I point to this other influence, whether it be other people, something that I put into my body, uh, you know, a, a sickness that I might have or, or what it may be, so that we kind of wrestle with I, that, that idea. I, I wanted people to, to say uh, as they're reading the book, well, it, is this really such a bad thing? And to kind of be... Uh, you know, lulled into maybe agreeing with some of the characters or, or partially agreeing with some of the characters uh, to say, well, maybe, maybe this actually would be a good thing. And, and, and what's so bad about that? And to kind of wrestle with those ideas of, uh, you know, is it, is it good to make someone else be good? You know, but, and you say, well, but it, it, it's good. We're, we're causing a good thing if I force other people to be good. But at what cost? And, and what's the balance for that? I think there's a lot of 
interesting ideas to think about, about, uh, you know, about real life and, and, and how people interact in the human race and um, wanted to explore some of those things in the context of a, of a fun adventure novel. I was wondering where the science of fungi ends and your imagination begins. And it might help if I read uh, a couple sentences from the book, because I don't know if the average person appreciates how complex fungi can be. Um, there's a doctor in the book who is studying them or treats people with fungal infections, a doctor named Mai Lin, and she talks about some of the attributes that make the fungus uh well, a fungus unique. So let me just read a little bit, and then maybe you could talk about what's factual and, and where your imagination came in. Uh, so she says, Did you know fungi outnumber plants six to one? They can survive anywhere. You can kill 99% of one, and it, it'll still survive. They don't even need light. Fungi have been found thriving in highly radi radioactive places, like reactor cooling tanks, the ruins of Chernobyl, and the rubber window seals of the International Space Station. And she ends that thought by saying, when we finally find life on other planets, there's a good chance it'll be a fungus. Everything that she says in that passage is true about fungi, and a lot of the other things that people say throughout the book about fungi in general are, in fact, true. Uh, for me, uh, books will often start with the research, uh, where there is some uh, scientific uh, phenomenon or topic that catches my interest and draws me in and I want to learn a lot about it because it's amazing and then I draw from that and say well, in what way would this uh, or could this affect people in an interesting way that that could cause a story to come out of it um, and so yeah fungi are uh, little known, uh, people don't think about fungi very often, except if it's the you know mold on their shower or, or athlete's foot or what have you. Um, but there is a remarkable diversity in the kingdom fungi um, and uh, some remarkable properties. Uh, you have fungi that are able to uh, infiltrate uh, other animals. And uh, if you've seen the, uh, the, the zombie ants, uh, portion of, uh, of of the BBC's Planet Earth. It's some uh, amazing things there where uh, um, fungi can uh, actually cause ants to uh, change their behavior, to choose to climb up uh, uh, sticks or, or pieces of grass and latch on so that the fungus can grow out of their brains and then uh, erupt to send spores everywhere to infect other ants, etc. So it it's, has a strategy of survival that involves uh, taking control of an of, a, of an animal. Um, and uh, fungi, uh, I mean, you have them all over you, um, all over your skin. You have microscopic fungi, and all over your house, there's fungi um, that are uh, you know part of the ecosystem that we that we live in. And they have, uh, you know, all kinds of, um, uh, you know, very real diseases that are uh, fungal based. So a lot of what happens in the story are things that I've drawn together from uh, things that fungi really can do um, and, uh, you know, put them together into a way that um, that serves, uh, you know, my ends of, of this, uh, uh, you know, kind of creepy scenario in the story. I think one of the things that's unexpected is that we think of fungi as a lower life form. As you say, 
you know, the scum on the wall in the bathroom or the annoying athlete's foot or the mushrooms that, you know, pop up here and there might be poisonous, but not as something that might be able to to plan or plot. And that's sort of an open question in your book, I think, about how cognizant and coordinated the fungus is. But, but in the end, the ends are quite far-reaching and certainly give the appearance of there being um, a strategy. And I think that's, that's interesting. That adds to, I think, the surprise value of the story because you don't expect that from something that we've come to think of as so-called lower life form. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of lower life forms uh, or what you would think of as lower life forms that uh, exhibit some pretty sophisticated behavior, uh, not because they're doing it consciously, uh, you know, the way we would with a, a conscious planning, um, but the the uh, way that they have evolutionarily developed to fit into their various niches can uh, sometimes involve some pretty complex decision-making behavior. And in fact, we see that in fungi. We see fungi that, that stretches underground throughout forests, infiltrating plants and uh, covering acres underground sometimes. And uh, they're, they're making all kinds of complex decisions in this uh, you know, brain-like network underground about where nutrients go, where moisture goes, what uh, plants are going to uh, thrive or die based on what is going to best benefit the, the fungus uh, in its uh, spread and uh, in its life. Um, not because it's thinking about it, but because um, it has evolved that very complex behavior to uh, accomplish those ends and make those, you know, respond to its environment in complex ways. Yeah, I thought that was amazing. Is that that's actually true that a fungus can have a network, uh, an individual entity it can have a network that spans acres and, and does so much? Uh, that is actually true. The uh, the largest organisms in the world are not uh, blue whales or redwood trees, but uh, individual fungi organisms with, uh, yeah, just miles upon miles of microscopic mycelia all curled up and going under the soil when you're walking through the forest. There are, you know, particular places where they've mapped how far they go and, and yeah, acres. So my Lynn could have said that if there's another extinction event like there was with the dinosaurs or might, that people say might happen with global warming, we can assume that some form of fungi will probably survive. Uh, yes, I think you can uh, definitely say that. How does your training as an engineer inform your writing? And your book touches on a number of government agencies like the NSA. I wondered how much of that was from personal knowledge. There's, there's code breaking in the book. I don't know if, if that does overlap in any way with your work. And I don't know if it's classified in some way. Maybe you can't say anything. But, but I was curious because I thought it was an interesting, um, I wondered there was potentially an interesting way to complement, you know, your work by day and then your work when you're doing your, your fiction writing. Yeah, well, I think they absolutely do uh, complement each other. Um, I think probably the greatest advantage to my, that my job has for my writing is that I work with uh, a whole bunch of nerds 
uh, who, who really enjoy science and technology and science fiction. And um, so I can interact with them about uh, some of the ideas that I have, bounce things off of them. Um, and uh, that's a, it's a great environment for a, the idea for a book to uh, kind of, um, uh, you know, <laughs> start to grow. Um, and uh, some of my friends at work, my uh, co-workers, will, are, are among my uh, early readers who will read the stories and uh, comment on them and uh, have um, ideas that they can throw in there. So I, I'd say that's probably the biggest thing. Um, you know, as far as the, um, the uh, intelligence agency things that are uh, in the book, I think what I was particularly trying to do there was to make that a, a realistic look at an intelligence agency, not, not based uh, on any particular personal experience per se, but just on the knowledge uh, that, you know, intelligence agencies are not, uh, you know, James Bond kind of, uh, of situations. They're large bureaucratic organizations that have a lot of smart people working for them because they hire smart people. Um, and have a lot of very you know, people who are varied very much in their skill set, in their personality, in their um, uh, their uh, you know age and gender, and uh, the uh, so you know so it has all of the um, things that you would expect of a large organization. In that um, it has uh, you know things that are slow and old in terms of uh, processes that uh, that are entrenched and take forever to change or you know complicated ways in which money flows and authority flows and all those kinds of things in many ways it's like a uh, large uh, defense contractor like Lockheed Martin that I work for um, so I, I kind of drew from a lot of those experiences at work what people are like what the work environment is like what um, sorts of barriers you have to accomplishing things in your job and projected that onto um, my uh, envisioning of what it would be like to work for the NSA. And I think the result um, is something that, that feels a lot more realistic than a lot of your Hollywood portrayals of, you know, sending assassins out to murder people and uh, those sorts of things. And I wanted to talk about another aspect of your of your world, and uh, you talk about it on your website. You make no secret that you're a Christian, and and you write. I'm just going to quote from your website. Many people have wondered how I can reconcile my faith with the love of science, and particularly the theory of evolution that is evident in my books. And then you also wrote in a blog post. I believe the Bible to be the inerrant word of God, and I think science is a wonderful and reliable source of knowledge. To many, this may seem to be contradictory, end quote. So I'm, I'm sure this, I mean, of course, this is a topic that, you know, deserves a, a book or volumes of books, but I was hoping maybe you could share with me some of your thoughts on the compatibility of your religious beliefs with science and the science of evolution, which, in fact, plays a role in the genius plague because you pretty much spell out that the fungus is playing by evolutionary rules when it is manipulating humans to help it survive. Uh, yeah, I'd be glad to. It's a, it's a favorite subject of mine, and uh, I'll, I'll try not to go into too much depth. I would uh, point anyone who is interested in uh, more of my thoughts on this subject to my blog where I have a series of 
of uh, blog articles going into uh, some of the details. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I grew up um, with the, being taught that uh, evolution was false and was in fact silly, um, and uh, being taught that that was um, a necessary part of uh, belief in God and uh, acceptance of the Bible. Um, and as I uh, grew older, um, had some different experiences, uh, uh, particularly uh, read Origin of the Species and uh, a number of other uh, science books. I love reading science books. Um, I uh, came uh, <laughs> face to face with the uh, tremendous amount of evidence that uh, there is uh, in support of evolution um, and had to, had to figure that out, had to figure out, well, what does that mean for my faith? Um, and there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that I could say about, uh, you know, reconcil reconciling the Bible and science, but I guess I could uh, probably sum it up by saying um, that um, it says a lot more about uh, God and his creativity um, to suggest that um, he was able to create the diversity and wonder that we see around us through a process like evolution, that it does to say that um, he just, uh, you know, made it all exactly as it is uh, without following that process. Um, it's the difference that, you know, as if I just built something, or if I built a robot to build something, the, the, the second one requires more creativity, more ingenuity, and it is a uh, more amazing and impressive feat. Um, and I would encourage anyone who is listening, who is a Christian and is serious about their faith, um, to not be afraid to look into the uh, details and the specifics of science and what it says about the world around us. Um, because if you are holding on to a faith that requires you to have a blind eye to something and not look at it, then that's, that's not much of a faith. Um, the, uh, you know, you want a faith that is based on truth and based on considering uh, all of the input that you can have. Um, and so, uh, you know, go ahead and, and take a look at and understand um, what science has to say and the, uh, you know, venue in which it can have quite a lot to say about our world that is true and help us to understand truth and recognize that there are things that science can't speak to and can't answer because they get into the metaphysical, they get into the reasons of why we are here, why things happen, what is the purpose of our lives, the, the difference of uh, conscious man um, and uh, morality and all those kinds of considerations that science is not equipped to answer and um, recognize that we can get truth from both of those places that, um, that are in fact true together. Did the understanding that you came to have about evolution, the change in your thinking, cause conflicts in your life with people you loved, with family or other people who held more traditionally, I suppose, anti-evolutionary beliefs? Um, to some extent, um, not, not as much as... Um, as I'm sure some people have encountered in uh, in similar circumstances, I was an adult and and married at the time when I uh, you know came to the point of making that switch, and uh, I think if my wife had been very opposed to that, 
um, that would have, you know, she also grew up in a Christian home where, uh, you know, evolution was taught to be false. Um, I think that would have been a much more difficult um, and, you know, contentious uh, situation um, if we were at odds on that. But she, even though she's not uh, as interested in science in general as I am, uh, kind of uh, came along the same path with me as I discussed the things that I was reading with her um, and uh, and pretty much came to the same place that uh, that I am at about the same time that I did, though with much less of a, um, uh, I guess, uh, for me, it was very much of a, a, a passion to know all of the details that I could understand about uh, about the science, both because I liked the science and because it was, uh, you know, such a critical thing for me in, in understanding what I believed and who I was. But um, certainly there's a conflict with our parents uh, to some extent on that subject, but it's not something that, it's not something that has a ongoing contentiousness there. It's something that um, we know that we disagree on. There was nothing overt in the story that would have made me think there was anything, uh, it, it was not infused with a sense of any kind of religious perspective at all, but as we've been talking and the way you described what the fungus does to... Oh, and look, I don't know if you can hear the church bells in the background, but appropriately they are ringing in the background <laughs> out the window uh, on the half hour. But you were talking about the, the fungus, you know, raising questions. It sounded almost like free will. Are you being guided by this thing? Is this thing... Are you making the decisions? Are we ever making the decisions? Like I could imagine going down a path where you could actually explore some of these fundamental issues of ethics and morality that religion also explores and tries to answer, uh, but through your writing. And I wondered if you do attempt to do that sometimes, and if, in fact, you maybe were with the genius plague in, in some parts of it. Yeah, I'd say all my books, to some extent, touch on those issues, because those issues are fascinating to me. In, uh, in superposition and supersymmetry, uh, which are, are quantum physics murder mysteries, um, I touch on that uh, idea of free will a fair amount. And, um, you know, what, what, you know, is it our genes that control us? It, it, is it, um, uh, you know, to what extent do we have the freedom to choose? To what extent does the, um, uh, you know, predictability of the world, uh, even down to the, uh, you know, probability of quantum events, uh, mean that our lives are in fact mapped out for us versus um, being able to make those choices ourselves. Um, probably the book of mine that most gets into those uh, sorts of issues is uh, Quintessence, uh, which is uh, which came out from uh, Tor in 2012, um, and that is a uh, a it, it's more of a a fantasy leaning. I think of it as science fiction, but it has a fantasy vibe to it. It, it takes place in the 16th century. There are sea monsters, and they're going off to the the edge of the flat Earth to uh, discover the uh, you know magic that's out there. Um, but the magic is in fact uh, a science. It's just a different science than uh, was uh, discovered by the early experimentalists in our own world. Uh, and so you don't know ahead of time what they're going to figure out. But the main character in that book is wrestling with his faith. He is uh, a, a scientist before there were scientists um, who, who is, uh, you know, experimentalist, is um, uh, doing these experiments that reveal truth about the world that conflicts with um, what he believes to be true on the basis of his faith. And so he is wrestling uh, with that throughout the whole book. Um, 
in all my books, though, I'm not trying to give answers to the readers because I think fiction that gives that, that tries to preach uh, answers to the readers um, will uh, generally fails. Um, there are a few exceptions, but um, you know, generally a, a reader will bristle at at me trying to uh, you know write an essay in a story. They want a story. Um, but a, what a story does really well is ask questions, is get you thinking, is raise these issues that maybe you don't spend a whole lot of time in your life thinking about, but they get your mind going and you think, huh, I wonder how that works and how is that and why do I and this and that. And, um, and that's what I really enjoy um, in reading fiction and what I enjoy trying to do in the fiction that I write. Once one starts asking questions about faith, or tenets of faith, how do you know when to stop? Or do you never stop? And is it okay to always be asking questions and maybe challenging? Because once you, once you say one thing is not necessarily true, that science contradicts or offers a different view of it, and the evidence is contrary to what you know, I've been taught, you could do that about many things, I imagine, in you know, all religions. And all, all religions have things like that, that um, teach something for whatever reason, for historical, because that was the state of knowledge in the past, or again, that's a whole nother treatise. But I just wonder, you know, once you start, don't you keep asking questions over and over again? Uh, you do. And uh, I, I think I would expand that beyond uh, just uh, religion and say that that applies also to science and also to all of life, where um, I think it is a good thing to be asking questions. Um, on the other hand, if you hold everything to be up in the air, um, how can you live, right? So um, I think what we're left with as, as humans is to um, strive for a, a reasoned belief, uh, strive for a, an openness to questions that you never thought of before, an openness to uh, suggestions that uh, maybe you've been thinking about something uh, wrong or there's aspects of something that you haven't thought of. But at the same time, um, trying to use um, the intellect and ability that God has given you, as well as the insights and wisdom of other people, to say, uh, what can I believe that is well-supported? <laughs> what can I believe that is, uh, that is rational? and holds true a, a model of the world and life and spirituality and God that seems to hold together? Is it reasonable to believe that the Bible is true? Uh, can I uh, see a consistency throughout uh, the pages of what was written by different people at different times that tells a consistent story that, that provides a um, thorough and um, you know, well-motivated uh, justification or, or explanation for what I see about how people act, what I see about what the world is like, what I see in my own heart and thinking, um, and I believe that it does. Uh, and so for me, that's a, a well-reasoned, well-motivated belief. I can say that uh, you know this holds true with my experiences and my thoughts and, and the things that I've encountered. Um, but if I wasn't willing to question it, if I wasn't willing to consider um, alternate viewpoints and, and things that people might bring up that may question um, all or, or even just some or a tiny part of what I believe, then, uh, then it's dogma. Then it becomes something that I'm holding to not because I think it's true, but because I'm afraid of the implications of what it might mean to change my mind. 
Um, and I think a tremendous amount of evil has come in the world uh, when people hold to dogma, when people think um, I'm holding on to this thing as the truth because that aligns me with a set of people and disaligns me with, uh, with another set of people. And, um, and it's, it's my identity. And so I'm going to love these people and hate these people and believe this, uh, you know, against any evidence to the contrary without thought, because that is the, that is the least scary thing for me to do. Um, because it's scary to, to consider alternate views. Um, but I think it's, it's necessary and important both for our own growth and, and, and the, 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 the realist, realism of our beliefs um, and also for the ability to understand and care for others and say, I understand why you think the way you do, even though it's different than the way I do. And, and so we can, we can get along. What's next on the horizon for you? What's next for you book-wise? I have a, uh, a finished manuscript, which uh, I hope uh, you will be uh, seeing. Um, well, which, which you will certainly be seeing uh, sometime in the future. I don't have a, a, a release date for it yet, but it's called Three Laws Lethal. And it is an uh, artificial intelligence story based on, uh, you know, again, the um, my computer science background and engineering background and uh, knowledge of um, what AI is doing today and how that field is progressing uh, in combination with the um, rising uh, uh, self-driving car movement uh, and saying, uh, you know, let's uh, explore the idea of a truly conscious artificial intelligence that would grow out of that movement where we are trying to put life and death decisions about humans in the hands of cars. Um, and it's, uh, it's not simply a, um, a, you know, robots rise and kill all the humans kind of story, because that's been done before. And, and uh, to me, that's a, a little bit boring. Um, this is a much more, um, like the genius plague, uh, reasoned and two-sided uh, look at um, how, you know, what's the meaning of consciousness and, and what does it mean to be conscious and, and how can you recognize it when it's there and what kinds of ethical uh, considerations does that bring about having a machine consciousness and, and how might we interact with it and what does it mean to, uh, to uh, have, you know, our changing world where um, we're putting uh, such decisions in the hands of computers and, uh, you know, all of those kinds of considerations. I think it's an exciting and fun novel. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, the chance for, uh, for a lot of people to read it and tell me what they think. I can't wait to see it because the idea of those self-driving cars kind of scares me. I mean, logically, of course, it sounds like a computer managing speed and distance and being alert with radar to all, all around you would, would keep you safer, but somehow it creeps me out. So I think it's a, a, good, a good place to start with a book. In fact, it's a great idea, I think. So I'm looking forward to seeing it. Great. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate uh, your being on New Books in Science Fiction. My pleasure. I've been speaking with David Walton about his new book, The Genius Plague, which came out in October. If you want to hear more author interviews, visit the science fiction channel of newbooksnetwork.com or subscribe to our podcast. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron. The editor-in-chief of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. And the editor is Leanne Wilson. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. And I'm grateful you took the time to listen. 
thanks, and I hope you have a wonderful 2018.